Well, good evening to all of you. Sure is nice here today in the Willamette Valley. <laughs> Just keeps dripping and dripping and dripping. Well, Vancouver too. I could throw that in. It's <clears throat> up the north end of there. I was just thinking today, I, I don't know, as beautiful as that country is in there, I don't know whether I'd want to really live there or not year-round and get nine months of this, but uh, I like sunshine, <laughs> but so be it. All that rain up there brings an awful lot of growth and beauty and fruit and all kinds of things that we don't enjoy here because of sunshine and not much rain, but this year is quite different. I'll tell you what, though, you need to make it a point to go out on the desert uh, sometime this spring. It will be a riot of color with this much rain. It's been years. I mean, every year in the spring, you'll get a few cactuses blooming, which have their beautiful neon colors, uh, but when we get this kind of rain, there's every color of flower out there, and they're just as thick as they can be. <clears throat> it's just absolutely stunning to see the, uh, the desert in a wet spring. And this is, by the way, now springtime. The equinox was yesterday, and the new moon followed right, up, right afterward. So that means we have a Passover about as early as you can get this year. Uh, in fact, I guess there wasn't even a day in between, I guess, the equinox and, and tonight. So this is as early as you can have Passover, unless I'm miscalculating a little bit somewhere. So Passover will be the night of April 3rd. You all have calendars, I'm sure. And we'll have very many announcements between now and then, but <clears throat> Passover service is the evening of April 3rd, Monday night. And I've got the schedule about worked out as far as uh, events and uh, recreational and food stuff, but uh, I want to have whoever wants to be involved go over it. I just gave a copy to Jessica, and uh, she'll have a little meeting and get your input and suggestions as possibilities. Uh, one thing that I'm thinking seriously of doing, and probably will, is organizing a trip out to Toro Week, uh, where uh, the Grand Canyon overlook of Toro Week. Most people don't ever get there. They don't know about it. They go north rim, south rim. The popular places, but it's quite deep at Torawith and not very wide. It's just uh, what a gash in the earth. So I'm thinking of doing it as something for everyone, and we could have the service out there and a picnic, but it's uh, 60 miles of dirt road, and I don't know, there might be some who couldn't rock and roll that long, uh, so we might do something else for a picnic and then make that a voluntary one for anybody who wants to go on one of the afternoons. You can talk that over, uh, see what you think of what's on the schedule, and uh, it, it may need to be changed a little bit <coughs> to accommodate everything. Anyway, that's in the works. Now, as far as George is concerned, uh, he did. they moved him yesterday afternoon. Uh, into a place right near the uh, hospital there. Uh, it's called Bella Terra. And it's just across from Jones Paint and Glass, if you know where that is. Uh, and, well, in Applebee's, actually, if you go straight back from Applebee's to the next street, it's right there almost directly behind Applebee's as well. So you can get at it kind of from either way. But the uh, address there is 1785 South, or, uh, I'm sorry, 178 South, that's a S, not a 5, 178 South and 1200 East. 
And their phone number is 435-688-1207. 435-688-1207. Now, he does not have a room phone. So, that will get you into the facility, but it, it won't get you to George. Uh, his daughters are here. They came in last night. Uh, Sally and Jennifer, I think. And uh, they were to go get him a phone today, a cell phone. Uh, his that he had, he never used, so he canceled it. And now he's going to be in there for quite some time, and he'll have to have a cell phone if he's to receive or make any phone calls. So they may have gotten that taken care of today. I haven't heard... Did you, Nelson, or anybody hear the number? So I don't know whether they got that done or not today. Uh, also, if anybody is happening to be going in and are going to drop in on him, uh, might remember just to grab his mail out of his box out here and take it whenever anybody's going while he's in there uh, so we can keep up with it. Uh, he's got... I think three or four pieces of junk mail in there right now is really all it is, but he might like to sort his junk. Who knows? <laughs> now, as far as his condition itself, uh, I think I told most of you the other night, he, they decided not to <clears throat> operate on his leg. The bones did apparently line back up okay, and uh, they think that it'll heal quicker and do better if they don't do surgery. And that could very well be true because when you're in the age and condition he is, uh, his bones probably are not real strong to start with. And uh, I don't know whether he has any of that osteoporosis or not, but he very easily could have. So they heal slowly under those conditions, especially when your health overall is not good. So they may have made a good decision there, and I don't know why. I heard his daughters were upset that they weren't going to operate, and uh, I, I think they kind of were blaming Nelson and me for that, and we had nothing to do with it. It was uh, entirely between George and the doctors what they were planning on doing. We didn't consult the doctors at all. I mean first night emergency room, I said hi to two of them, but that was it, and we didn't discuss him or his condition, so maybe they'd settle down, I, I hope so. Uh, they generally are fairly friendly, uh, even though they don't much care for this church. Uh, they, I think some of them kind of go to United, but they didn't want him to move out here in the first place, and they still don't like it, <laughs> so... It's kind of, I'm just friendly with them, and they tend to be kind of friendly back, but sometimes you get a little feeling about the way things really are, and that's okay. I understand that. Uh, they aren't the only ones that think we're nuts for being here. There's a lot of people think that. <laughs> so, let the chips fall. Anyway, as to his condition, which is more important, uh, I told some, I don't think I told everybody, but he has third-degree uh, kidney failure, which affects him quite a bit, and he also has, of course, heavy diabetes. His sugar was 430 the night they picked him up and took him into the hospital, which is way high. And he says, well, that's kind of normal for me. Well, it may be kind of normal for him in some respects because everything plays into it. His diet, his overall health, I don't want to get into all of it, but uh, he does tend to have really high blood sugar a lot of the time. And, of course, what that does <clears throat> is the side effect generally. I'm not into medical all that heavily, but I, I've observed a lot of things over the years and heard doctors and read some things, But so I'm no authority by any means, but uh, my impression is that if you get high blood sugar like that over a long period of time, 
it can destroy your kidneys particularly and your pancreas. And when those go, um, you're in pretty serious trouble. So they don't go to dialysis with uh, a level three, but with level four, and it gets up to a certain point, uh, then they do the dialysis thing. And I'm hopeful, really, that they control what he eats in there. Uh, it's a VA. Well, it isn't run by the VA, but it's one of the ones that VA has accepted uh, under their policies. But maybe they'll give him the kind of foods and restrict his diet uh, in such a way they can keep his blood sugar under control. That's what I'm hoping. Because on his own, he's had great difficulty uh, doing that. So uh, it may be a plus, really, that he's in there for some time. They said probably six weeks minimum before he could put any kind of weight on the leg. And I wouldn't surprise me if it was eight. Uh, sometimes those bones knit fairly fast, and if health is not good, then it takes longer. So I, I expect George will be in there at least six to eight weeks, and then we'll have to assess where he is and how much strength he has and capacity to take care of himself and recommending whether he stay in a facility or whether he could come home. But uh, that just depends on what all happens between now and then. So he's, uh, he's safely ensconced there. Did I give you the room? It's room 115. I, think, I don't think I mentioned that. Room 115. Kind of toward the back. <coughs> So, I, I hope we continue our prayers for George, because a broken leg like that, uh, at his age and in his health, can be a very difficult situation, and uh, a lot of people don't recover from such things. I was amazed that Al sitting here broke his hip two or three or four years ago, whenever it was, He's up walking around. <laughs> That's, uh, that is in some ways unusual for someone his age to break a hip. They usually start downhill pretty fast, but he was able to be healed and get up and still walking around. So I, maybe God had something to do with that. We still got Al with us, thankfully. But uh, we are getting older, and I don't know when God is going to do his healing for us. I'm hopeful, beginning the first month, that this could be the first month when he starts, but I don't know that. I just uh, hope. I try not anymore to get my hope and expectations too high. It's just a matter of believing in him, believing what he says, and then patiently waiting until his time, whenever that may be. <coughs> so, we can always hope and we can pray that God give us deliverance, some at least, if not the big one. Uh, we do need some relief. And bear in mind also between now and Passover, it's only 14 days now, uh, that Satan is very active usually before the holy days. And it's always been my uh, uh, perception but it's even more so before Passover than any of the others. There are accidents, there are falls, there are breaks, there are sicknesses. It just, it seems like Satan's all stirred up before Passover, and I can understand why. Uh, so, we need to pray to God that his powers and abilities be muted and he's not allowed to bother us. So make that part of your prayer also between now and Passover that uh, Satan be restrained from us. Uh, it just is that way, and I've noticed that for 50, 60 years, really, that we began noticing that, that he gets really active month two, three sometimes, but especially just before Passover. <coughs> and people can get discouraged and depressed and some of those things, and that's satanic attitudes. 
Uh, and then after the Passover and after the unleavened bread, it seems like to cheer up uh, because his he, his pressure isn't on quite the same way. It seems. So those are just factors that we, as human beings, seeking to serve God, are faced with. Well, I don't know what that had to do with George falling and, and breaking his leg, but who knows, it could be some of that. And uh, it, it made me think about it pretty seriously anyway, that uh, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and we need to ask for relief from that. So I guess that's about it on uh, those things. We've been going into the book of Revelation and Bible study for some time now, and uh, just as a very, very quick review, the first chapter has to do with Christ himself. It is the revelation of Christ, not the revelation of John, as some seem to think, but it even says it there at the beginning. And then it describes him and what he's done and what he's going to do. So the first chapter focuses us on Christ himself, that he is the key figure in this book, in the Bible, of course, as well, but specifically uh, having to do with end times, he's the key figure, central to everything. And then he shows the second most important thing in chapters 2 and 3. And that is the church or churches of God in their eras or their uh, administrations. Goes through all seven of them, chapters 2 and 3. So the first focus is on Christ, uh, the husband-to-be, and then on the church, the bride-to-be. when we get to the end of the book, it talks about the bride and Christ getting married. So this is all about the end time from its inception until its conclusion. So he gives some warnings in chapters 2 and 3 to the churches, <clears throat> gives them some encouragement, uh, talks about some of their good things, and then he gives them some warning about things they need to work on and overcome. So, uh, two chapters well spent addressing the churches and letting us know what we need to be doing. And to each and every one, he says, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So, if we have things that we've had areas of weakness or uh, had problems with, we had best be addressing those because, you know, some things you can overcome fairly easily when you come into the church, uh, like eating pig, let's say. It's not that big a deal for most people to say, well, I'll eat chicken and beef instead. And they don't have too much problem overcoming, if you will, that dietary thing uh, when they learn that it's not good. And some have a bit more of a problem, but most people don't have too much problem with that one. Uh, But then there are other things in our character, or our weaknesses, or our faults, or the things we're prone to think and do that aren't God's way. Uh, Some of those we don't work at quite as much because we might, might not want to really overcome them. We know ultimately we need to. But maybe we don't want to. <laughs> That's the way human nature is. Now, that can be different things to different people. There are all kinds of areas and ways to break God's law and His way of living. And, uh, you know, you might have, you might not have a problem with one thing that a lot of people have serious trouble with. And then something that they don't have much trouble with may be a deal breaker almost for you. Because that was a tough one for you. So we're all different in whatever weaknesses and strengths we have. But we need to identify uh, where it is that we are hesitant or unwilling or don't desire to overcome this, whatever it might be. 
we want to save that for last because it's our favorite. Uh, people are that way. I said, clean and unclean isn't that hard. Well, it's easy to quit it. But then in Alaska, when they went through the sermon after the Koch took over and said that unclean meats are okay, man, there was a rush to McDonald's after services. My daughter went to work at sundown after the Sabbath that night at McDonald's, and she was doing the drive-through that night. Here was church, car after car of church people stopping to get their BLT or whatever they got, uh, their bacon burgers. Uh, it's just like they just they just went away. Oh, preacher said it's okay. You know that one. I was thinking about that one a little bit this morning. I guess why it's on my mind. It just have we proved the things we're doing and believe? Have you gone through the Bible and checked the Scriptures to know what the Bible says? Or if you get a change in preachers and they say, oh, that's okay, don't worry about that. Oh, okay. It's it's almost beyond me. Uh, Same thing in Alaska when they changed the Sabbath from sundown to 6 o'clock. We're going to keep it from 6 to 6 because there might be somebody up in the North Pole that doesn't have sunrise and sunset. Well, it is black up there for some months every winter. But not where anybody lives that keeps the Sabbath. That's all south. There's nobody above the Arctic Circle that keeps the Sabbath that I've ever heard of. And we have sunset and sunrise. And you may only have four or five hours of of daylight at Fairbanks, say, but the sun comes up and the sun goes down. So it's not that big a deal. But they wanted to use it as a test, I believe, to see if people would buy the six to six because they were edging toward getting rid of the Sabbath entirely. But this was headed into getting rid of it by changing it. And I couldn't believe. We had they had a combined meeting in Anchorage of all four of the congregations up there, and there were between four and five hundred people there altogether. Gave a sermon. It's going to be six to six. And when the service was over, somebody right in front of me sat up and said, well, that makes my life easier. He's a commercial fisherman and uh, so on and so forth. And out of those four to five hundred people, I can only think of three families that didn't go to the six to six Sabbath. Mine and Mark Ross and uh, oh, what's the name down in Seward? I didn't. Maybe there was another one or two, but I never heard of them. I said, how do you? How do you do that? That was just almost beyond me. Have they not read, you keep your Sabbath from sundown to sundown? There in Leviticus, about atonement. And the day is sunset to sunset, all through establishes the pattern in Genesis and the other scriptures. <coughs> But no, preacher said it, so I guess it's okay. And I thought, you know, I might ought to give a sermon or two. I guess I am. Uh, about do, have you proved what we do? Now, we've made a lot of changes from what Worldwide did years ago right here. And I've tried to always only change those things which I find I can prove in the Scripture. If I can't prove it clearly, then I don't teach it. If I can, I'm going to teach it. And if everybody gets up and leaves, okay. Don't want them to, but okay. I'm going to do my best to follow and preach and teach the things I see in this book. 
And if that's the way I understand it, that's the way I'm going to say it, and I won't hold back. I think most of you know that by now. But if you can prove I'm wrong about something, you've studied it out, you found the Scriptures, you can prove it, bring it, we'll look at it. A lot of things got looked at uh, that people brought to me, in fact. Some were rejected. Some I looked through the Bible and accepted. Because it's there. But you need to be sure that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it and why you believe what you believe. Don't let me lead you astray. I'm here to point you to the Scriptures and to read the Scriptures to you. And then you to go over those scriptures and see if you agree and if that's the way it should be. Now, I'll tell you, New Moon has been a big question for a lot of years to quite a few people. Should we keep New Moon Day like a Sabbath or a holy day? Because the New Moon is mentioned as being important in more than one place, <clears throat> along with Sabbaths, in holy days, in the same context. But there's not one of them that says the new moon day is a Sabbath day and you should keep every one of them as a Sabbath, or something similar to that. It just doesn't say it. So even though it may be linked as an important day, Sabbaths clearly are said, keep it in more than one place. Holy days, it says to keep them in quite a few places. New moon, it never says keep it as a Sabbath. It's important to observe. It's how we keep track of time. But I haven't found anything that is clear enough that I can read that and tell you, you need to keep new moon as a Sabbath day. I can't find anything that clearly states that. And if I can't clearly and confidently in faith teach you that, I'm not going there. Somebody's got to find something in that book that makes it very clear to me in a way that I could make it understandable to you. So some people have gotten frustrated with me because I won't declare it a Sabbath. But I don't find it in there. Uh, a light illusion, not even quite that. It just doesn't say it. So, what does the book say uh, about clean and unclean? What does it say about the Sabbath and sunset and all those things? You need to have proved them. And then no one can turn your head it's so easy to turn away from the things we believe if we don't know for sure that it's true and have proved it and believe it to the very innermost part of our being. Take heed that no man deceive you. Well, if you don't know the doctrine, you don't know the Scriptures, it's fairly easy to be deceived. Look at how quickly Satan and Tkachev's Deceive the church about so many things. Just almost overnight. Prove to that they shouldn't tithe real fast. That one didn't take long. And then when the income dropped like a rock, he had to go back and, and <laughs> try to prove to them they ought to tithe. That must have been, been a harrowing time for him. To go one way and then realize, oh my, he just didn't know the Bible. He didn't know Scripture. The people were so used to following the leader, the Pied Piper, that they just whistled along and dropped all the things that they believed in. <clears throat> so we need to know why we believe what we believe, and then we need to know ourselves, getting back to the point, what we need to overcome that is contrary to the Scriptures. Um, that's far more important than, say, prophecy. Uh, prophecy is having some idea of future events and so on, uh, and that's good to know, 
But overcoming is key to getting into the kingdom of God, and that's our goal. Uh, so, anyway, chapters 2 and 3 are about getting the church ready. Then we come to chapter 4, and he focuses on the throne of God and what is going on there. So, the first part of Revelation is getting us in focus on the things that are truly important. Christ the Savior himself, the church which is being prepared as a bride for him, and then the very throne of the Father and the Son is described in chapter 4 in superlative terms. So once he gets us and our attention focused there in this book, then it begins to tell us some other things. That brings us to chapter 5 where we left off last time. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne, that we just described in chapter 4, a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now I'm going to interject the thought I was supposed to announce, completely forgot. Uh, before we go back to fellowship and visit and have snacks, uh, we were, had a, a choir practice planned tonight. And it would be nice if we would just come up after the Bible study and get that done. Because once we get back to talking and fellowshipping, it's harder to drag ourselves back and sing. So if we could do a quick practice, kind of go over the song that we're planning on using uh, for Passover, that would be nice right after. Sorry, but I have to bring something up when it comes through my mind or it might go away again. So here was this book, uh, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? This was, I'm sure, a curious thing for the patrons of heaven, the angels, the elders, everyone who was there. And here was a strong angel holding up a book. Now, those beings that are around the throne of God are pretty up on everything going on. And here was a book that was sealed. And I'm sure that got an awful lot of curiosity from all of those who were watching this happen in real time. Now, it was a vision that was given to John but I'm sure that it was also visible because it talks about the interaction between these various beings around God's throne. So here was a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Now I'm sure this projects to the end time because John was just, he was the only one that saw and heard this in vision other than those beings around the throne. And when these things actually come to pass, that John saw in the vision, they're going to be done before heaven and earth. So this is all for the future, but John was given a glimpse into that future to give us some clues and some information about the end times. Now, that's important why. It's important that we be close to God, important that we be overcoming and changing and becoming more like Him, because He's choosing a bride worthy of His Son. And none of us are worthy of being in the kingdom of God, nor certainly are we worthy of being a bride of Christ. And it has to be an awful lot of over... Of, uh, forgiveness and mercy and grace and so on for any of us to get there. And which does God look at? The Pharisee that says, oh Lord, I'm an awful lot like you, you know. <laughs> I give alms and I pray and I fast and all the things that I do. And uh, I'm sure I'm on your list, probably real close to the top of it. And then you had the publican back there who was so sinful and so weak, and so despised by others and himself, that he stood down and bowed his head and said, 
God have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's the one that Christ looked to. Those who are humble, who are willing to say, I'm not much like you, I want to be healthy. So, we have to be ready, with his help, to be a bride. And human beings are going to be there. It's being taken from humanity, not spirit beings that were created that way. So, at least 144,000 have to be prepared and chosen for that. And the book of Revelation gives us an awful lot of insight into that in the first four chapters and in the last chapter about the bride coming down with Christ and the Father. So, this in the middle gives an awful lot of awful things that will happen between the beginning and the end of the book of Revelation. And we need to be prepared for that as well. And isn't that what Christ did in Matthew 24 and Luke 25 and other places was to give us some insight on how the end times would be. That's what the disciples asked. What's going to happen and what are the signs of your coming? And then he told them some pretty awful stuff. And the, the seals of Revelation fit very nicely with, Revela- uh, with Matthew 24, 6 through 8 about a lot of the end time events that are going to come along. And they've been written parallel so that you can see that those things he said were the beginning of sorrows and they pretty much equate to these seven seals we're about to read about that sealed a book. A seal is just something you put on a book to seal it so you can't open it. Once you open it, you find out what's inside. But as these seals came off, Apparently, they were written in such a way, or sealed in such a way, that when one seal was taken loose, it opened up a certain part of it. And then when the next seal was taken loose, it opened up some more of it. It's like having chapters in a book, and you have a clip on each one to separate them, and they have to be opened separately. So a little bit is revealed each time one is opened. It wasn't like there was a book that was shut and then had seals over the whole thing. The way I picture this, the way it's read, is that each seal opened up a certain amount of the book. A chapter, let's say. So he says, who's worthy to open this? Some pretty important things in here. Uh, And if it wasn't important, anybody could open it. But it was very important. And they're looking around saying, who can open that? Because there's strong angels holding it, and there doesn't appear to be anybody around who can handle the job at hand. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So, That doesn't mean they're humans in heaven. It means that nobody of the heavenly uh, around the throne, angels or whoever, the elders, nobody could open it there, and nobody on or under the earth could either. Nobody down here could open it. So we're going to see this, I think, someday. Uh, That strong angel might be visible to us. And no man around the throne or no man down here can do a thing. I wouldn't be surprised if God made it that dramatic. And I wept much. Now, this is John's perspective, looking at this, because he saw nobody in heaven and earth could do this, and yet it seemed to be an important thing that needed to be done. So he cried a lot. He saw it in the vision, and it it overcame him with emotion. That here was something very, very important, and he wanted to see it too. But he couldn't.
Where did I read that? And then I, I lost it here. Nobody could open it. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open it and read it, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not. So he is, in this vision, he's connected with God's throne in heaven. He's already seen it and described it in chapter 4 for us. So he's still in that presence, being on the earth, being a human being, and yet this was a fairly long vision with a lot of parts in it as he was watching it unfold. So he was crying, and one of the 24 elders, apparently, said to John, Don't cry. I got a solution. (laughs) There is somebody that can do this. Dry your eyes. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now, this is a story, most of it, of Christ at the end time, the interaction between him and the church, the interaction between him and the beast power, the interaction between him and Satan. So, that's what's going on, and he's the only one that could open this book and explain to John or anyone else what's going on. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, that's right at the throne of God, uh, where Christ is with his Father, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, you remember in chapter 1, he talked about those spirits being the seven angels of the seven churches. So this is about him, it's about the church, and he even appears here in a different way than he did in chapter 1. There it described his head and his hair and his eyes and those things as a man, as, I mean, in the shape of, with the features of a man, if you will. Here he appears as the lamb, uh, having seven horns and seven eyes. Uh, So that's a a different description of Christ. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Now that must have been the Father himself who was holding this. Uh, He sat on his throne and he handed it to the Lamb, which would be Christ. They're the only two uh, to this point that have any idea about this book. They wrote it. They sealed it. Uh, Then there comes a time that they are going to open it. So he hands it to Christ. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So that shows you right there that it can be no one but Christ, if you're wondering about the horns and the eyes, because the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him, and that's what they do with the Father and the Son and no one else. So it has to be him. And I find it very interesting that they had harps and golden vials Full of odors. In other words, they held something full of odors, like spices, uh, like they brought them to Christ. And what were these? Were they things we can name down here that we have in our spice rack or our sweet smelling things? No. They are the prayers of the saints. God so much appreciates. Any attention we give Him and our prayers to Him are so important that He puts them in a vial and saves them and they are a sweet odor to Him. A lot of people save something in their house 
that gives them a gives off a scent that they like. We put stuff on our faces and necks of scents that we might like and think somebody else might like. Uh, we like things that smell good. Food smells so good, you know, and we cherish it. So the prayers of saints are something that are of special meaning to God. And these angels <clears throat> have been saving it up and keeping it in this vial to be released before God in heaven as a sweet savor to Him. I think it's described in those words somewhere. I forget just where. Do you think about your prayers that way? I think most of us probably approach God as the publican more than we do the Pharisee. Um, <laughs> what can I say about me that's going to impress God? <laughs> that's just plain laughable. How does the sovereign of the universe get impressed by any one human being? There were a few he mentioned who were notable characters in history, not very many, but a few, that he called a friend, that he talked with occasionally. It wasn't very often. Uh, we just aren't that impressive to him. And even some of the ones he spoke to weren't perfect either. They had their problems, and yet it was enough relationship that he would uh, visit with them. Now, he tells us in the New Testament that we're supposed to be his friends and be able to communicate openly with him. doesn't say that we'll hear him and he'll hear us audibly. He's in a place where he can hear it all or he can read our thoughts. But we don't have that on the other side going back. We have to approach him carefully, lovingly, kindly, humbly, pleading for mercy, forgiveness, and love to come to us from the Most High. Because we recognize a lot of our faults, our weaknesses, the things we could do better. Uh, like Paul said, the things I want to do I don't do, and the things I don't want to do I do. Uh, there is an evangelist, having been taught by Christ himself three and a half years, having much experience in the truth, and yet he was still having a struggle with his human nature. That's just the way it is. <clears throat> so we have to approach God carefully. And yet on the other hand, if we're humble and meek about it, Paul also tells us to go boldly before his throne. So I think a part of our prayer should be, have mercy on me, a sinner, I'm humbled by your great presence, and yet I have some needs down here, and I'm coming boldly with faith to ask for help. Because it is those very weaknesses and faults and sins that we need help with. And he's the only one that can help us. <clears throat> so we come boldly to ask for that help, knowing that He answers us if we pray according to His will. That's what He told the disciples in that last teaching. It's according to His will that we grow and overcome. There is no doubt about that whatsoever. That is solidly within His will that we grow and overcome. So you can go boldly asking for help with that chore. Whatever your problems might be, you take them to him and say, Father, I need help with this. I've been working at it. I can't handle it. Somehow help me overcome it. Help me deal with it. Give me the desire to overcome it. Because there are some things you just simply don't want to give up as a human being. So you need boldness and strength and power when you go before God, along with humility and meekness and the balance that comes therein.
So, our prayers are a sweet sin to God. That's what got me started on that. And we need to recognize and understand that and believe that and act accordingly. That He wants our prayers. He hears our prayers. And if they're good prayers, said in a right way, then they're truly valuable to Him. And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. Now, He told us earlier in Revelation 2 and 3, I think it was there, uh, about singing the new song. Oh, maybe it's in chapter 7. We're about the, the uh, 144,000. They sung a new song, and they were the only ones that could sing it. Nobody else apparently could understand the words, or the music was written in such a way that they couldn't understand it enough to sing it. Whatever the situation, only those 144,000 are given the capacity or the ability to sing it. We've probably experienced that in this life. Sometimes you see somebody stand up on a stage and they sing a song, and I can't sing it. You know, they can sing something that I couldn't begin to do what they're doing. Uh, I get watch, uh, oh, what's his name uh, from Amsterdam once in a while, Andre Rue. You know, somebody like those three tenors on there. And all three of them get to singing. I can't sing that song. It would be an awful pitiful <laughs> uh, part if I did. But this is something that apparently that many can sing and nobody else. And they're the ones that sung this new song saying the content of the song is given here. You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So they understand the purpose of God. They understand about the kingdom of God. They understand that they can be a part of the kingdom of God. And if they, their minds are open to sing this song, they know a lot more than anyone else on this earth knows. Because nobody but a few, even today, understand what the plan of God is all about. So how could those people sing a song about the plan of God? They couldn't, really could they? Because they don't know it. They don't know what it means. If somebody put words in their mouth, they might could say those words, but they would have no understanding of where this all goes. Go talk to a Methodist or a Baptist or whoever. Episcopalian, Lutheran, Moron, it don't matter. None of them understand. They can't sing that. It's foreign to them. Only those whom God has called and given His truth would be able to sing what He just wrote here. We're the only ones that understand His plan, His purpose, and how He's going about it. There are a lot of people that sing songs about Jesus. They don't know a thing about the plan of God and who Jesus really is, what kind of being He is. They just don't understand that. It's foreign to them. But these can sing what we just read there. They can sing praise to God. They can sing praise to His plan, to His purpose, to the resurrection all those things that will have to do with the Bride of Christ, they can sing about. Now, I'm sure that he has a specific song written that he will put in their minds, but there is a certain amount of understanding that has to go with that. Otherwise, they're just singing words that he put in their head, and it has no meaning to you and me Everything in that verse has meaning, doesn't it? We understand it. We know how it fits. We know where it's going. 
So this is something right now that the churches of God could partially sing and the rest of the world couldn't because they don't have a clue of what he's talking about. That puts us in pretty rare air uh, to, to be able to even know that. And have made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. How many people on this earth understand that? They think they're going to die. Nearly all of them go to heaven or hell. I had that talk up in my mind uh, yesterday or whenever it was. It's so common in the world, spoken many times every day, people will tell you to go to hell. I mean, that's a common expression, is it not? Have you ever heard anyone tell you to go to heaven? <laughs> it just occurred to me, I've never heard that. Even when you, well, they, they'll tell you that after you die and you can't hear it. You go to heaven. They've been telling them every Sunday they're going to hell, and then they change their tune all of a sudden when they die. Uh, how can they make that judgment? Anyway. And behold, I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. So that's a hundred million plus. That's a lot of angels. Man, the choir of God is something. Whew! I'd like to sing in that someday. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He's the one that deserves that. And we are the only ones who understand the situation enough to be able to say those things and know what they really mean. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. There are scriptures that talk about how the earth, uh, I forget the word, more or less sighing and crying under the burden of Satan and man and the things that he and we have done to this earth. And God even says, Woe to him that pollutes the earth. So the whole world, earth, groans is the word in Scripture, as I recall now. It's groaning, but it's going to change. And the earth and the animals, even the fish, are going to become at peace and full of joy and all their troubles are going to be gone. You know how it is in the sea? The little fish get eaten by the big fish. And the big fish get eaten by the bigger fish. And it's a fish-eat-fish world out there. And on the earth, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And you go up through the pecking order. I just read today about a guy who was sitting in his hot tub in Colorado, not, not ten miles from where I used to live there, sitting in his hot tub, and all of a sudden a mountain lion starts chewing the top of his head. Uh, wasn't pleasant. Uh, that puts you under stress and a certain amount of pain and difficulty. The whole earth is groaning because after Adam and Eve did what they did, the snakes bit, and the mosquitoes bit and the foxtail stuck in and all these things changed and it became an uncomfortable world in a lot of ways and God is going to change all that back to the original and the creatures don't have to live in fear of their lives all the time I mean you've seen plenty of nature movies and things and everybody's getting chased by something their lives made miserable by the cat trying to catch the mouse. And it's all true. But it's going to change. It won't be that way anymore. 
And the scripture tells us that. The lion and the lamb and all those things that we find in Isaiah. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Now that's quite a story. I hadn't really thought of it in that way when they sung that new song. Then he tells us a lot of the content of the song. It's just right there for us. And nobody can know it but those 144,000. That's it. And I think that gives additional proof, just as a side thought, that those mentioned in Revelation 7, the great multitude, apart from 144,000, are indeed in the second resurrection, because he's talking about just before and as Christ returns, singing that new song. And nobody can sing it but 144,000 no more. And yet here are these others who have been given white robes. They're going to be in the kingdom of God, but they can't sing this because why? They're dead and waiting for the second resurrection when they'll come up and have the white robes and be a part of the kingdom of God at that time. So this is just for those whom God is calling now as candidates for the bride, 144,000, and that's it. And we're the only ones already that have a clue about this song and what he just said about it. He didn't give us the whole song, I don't suppose, but he gave us enough here to know what it's about, the subject. We'll get all the words later, maybe, in the tune and, and have a hundred million angels sing it with us with all the harps and vials and trumpets of God, and what a sound that's going to be. I about break up just thinking about it. Anyway, we're over time. I guess. It's okay if we take a little time. But now we can do a little singing and a little eating and fellowshipping and hopefully go home in peace.